0: Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, our guest this week is Nolene Blackwell. Nolene is probably one of the best-known human rights lawyers in the country, albeit she doesn't practice in the strictest sense as a lawyer, uh, but she is a lawyer who has been involved in human rights for most of her adult life. Nolene had her own solicitor's practice, which specialised in immigration and human rights, before she took up the job of Chief Executive of the Free Legal Aid Centre, FLAC, in 2005. I suppose one of the best descriptions I've seen of FLAC is an organisation dedicated to achieving equal access to justice for all. And that would be no mean feat when one considers how inaccessible the courts are for most people. In 2016, she left FLAC to take up the role of Chief Executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, where she has been since. Nolan, you're very welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks very much, Mick. It's good to talk to you. Thank you.
0: Noeline, just to start off, and it's something that I think always crops up and I'm always good to hear from somebody like you about the specifics of this. But tell me this, how many women, and it's mainly women, who come into the centre to seek help about an incident of sexual assault of one sort or another actually see the perpetrator being dealt with by the criminal courts?
1: So very, very few. And if I can just put a bit of context around that as well, Nick. So in um, in a normal year, we would see about 600 people, about 80% of them are women. So like about 500 women and about um, 100 men, although there would be some who wouldn't identify with either gender, Mm. but about 600. And um, of that, every single year that goes by, you will find that maybe 10% of people will pursue anything through the courts. When you think about it, most people know the person who has carried out the abuse. They come to us looking for help, for support, for therapy, for healing. And also then some of them want to know what about reporting it. But when you think about crime in general, and no better man to think about it than yourself, Mick, but when you think about crime, for the most part, people go to the Gardaí about someone they don't know. They go about... Uh, And none, they may not have seen them. Uh, They may be unknown to them. They're very often strangers. It's the exact opposite in sexual and domestic violence. Sexual violence is our area. There's 16 rape crisis centres around the country. Uh, We'd be the biggest because we're based in Dublin, but we work quite closely with sexual violence Cork, with Galway, Wexford, a number of the others as well around the country. But in Every single rape crisis centre and every single year from what we know, the people who come to us are complaining or just talking and looking for help in relation to a violence, sexual violence they suffered uh, at the hands of a partner or an ex-partner, a member of their own family, either recently or when they were young, small children, or someone in their friend group or someone they're dating, or someone they work with. So in those circumstances, you have another barrier, because in order to report that kind of crime, it has consequences for you within your community, within your family. Sometimes, regularly still, people will say, my family don't want me to do anything about it. They support me, but they don't want me to take it any further, because it wouldn't go down well in the local area. Uh, people don't report something that happened to them at work because they say, I'll be the one who'd be blamed. I'll be the one who'd be sacked. So every single year, first of all, it can take people ages to even think about reporting. They're so shocked. They need help for themselves. But like I say, that's like, you know, if you're physically injured in a car crash or something and you're taken to hospital, uh, you can't be going reporting immediately. You need to get help for your injuries first. So the, the general um, feeling is that maybe overall about 10% of those who um, suffer abuse, sexual abuse at the hands of somebody will go to the guards. Of that 10%, maybe only 10% of those, so maybe 1% overall, will actually get as far as court. Some people will fall along the way, either because... There isn't enough evidence there for the guards to go ahead with it. Or they get worn out by the process. It just takes so long. And while they're, while they're going through that process, they can't heal because they have to remember every single thing about the incident. Which Because normally the, the main evidence is the evidence of the person who says they were abused and the person they say was the abuser. That's normally the main evidence. So they get exhausted by it. They say they want to heal. And they don't like the intrusive nature of it. There's pressure put on them by somebody to step away from it. Uh, There's so many reasons. Somebody um, like COVID, for instance, will have stopped an awful lot of people going on to court because the thought of not just waiting maybe two or three years, but maybe five or six years to get to court just doesn't make it worth their while. And, And we all know that even though people are starting to try and put it right, the courts are a cold place to go. And so when people come to us and we give them advice and we say, we'll support you if you want to go to the Gardaí, we'll support you if you want to go to court, we'll be there for you. We won't be telling you legal advice because you can't get that, but we will help people. But we have to say to them, this is what it entails. And very often people will say, nope, I'm not up for that. I'm not up for our system, which really was so poorly designed when it comes to intimate violence, which is what I call this. So, very long answer. A tiny, tiny percentage of people that go for help to a rape crisis centre will end up going to court and seeing their abuser there.
0: Yeah, it is tiny, all right. And in that context, Nolene, when somebody comes to you, or to the the rape crisis centre, one of the rape crisis centres, the general policy, if a person comes and says, my feelings are so strong on this, I want the perpetrator to pay. Do the centres see themselves as having any role to encourage that on the basis that for the overall uh, context of of intimate violence, that the more people that are prosecuted, the better? Or do you take a more removed uh, position in that respect?
1: Yeah, I think you could call it a removed position. It's a neutral position. We neither encourage nor put somebody off reporting. What we want to be sure is that as far as we can, the person who does who does report or who wants to report understands what they're doing and is their best self going into it. You know, that we can support them and give them the sense of, of right, you know, that they're doing the right thing if that's what they want to do. And still so that we're saying to somebody else who says, I can't go through with it, I'm not going through with it, that they understand what, um, what, you know, that they are getting um, a way of not feeling guilty because they don't report. Look, you know, you can't, it it, it, it takes all of us to make our society and it, it will take a variety of people at different times. You, you touched on something there a little while before. Often why people do report is they want that abuse never to happen to them again or mm-hmm. never to happen to somebody else. So you will find even after years, somebody will come and say, now I want to report because I see my abuser starting a new family or something and I am concerned about the children or something like that. They may they may go and say something like that. Or a young person in, a, in, a, in work or in a club says I am going to report because that's going to happen to somebody else and I can't bear for that to happen to somebody else. It's a big motive for people to say that abuse has to stop And that's why they go. But the way we try and encourage people to report is by making, helping to make the system one which is fairer and easier to go through. So we don't say to people, we'll push you to report. We say to people, we will try and work with our legislators. We'll use our voices to say, you cannot seriously expect people to go into this Without support from us, without legal assistance, uh, without having a good understanding of what they're going to go through, without getting a trial within a reasonable period of time. So that's where we will say we know that some of the reason people don't report is because the system still isn't good enough
0: yeah and i I came across that myself last year, Nolina, as a story did about uh, two sisters and their cousin who went through the system um, and it was many years after they had been abused by an uncle and ultimately there was a I think it was a guilty plea but the, the man was imprisoned and what have you. But what really came across was two elements to it in terms of the system and for them as victims having to deal with the system. One was the unevenness. Of the service yes. within the Garda, for instance, they did one experience of a Garda that was absolutely top class, empathic, everything that you could ask for. They had another that was quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. Within the legal system, the, the the overall impression I got from them was that this was regarded to a large extent as it might be as if somebody had uh, stolen a bicycle from a shed. Yes. In terms of any yes. kind of feeling or empathy or understanding for the victim, mm-hmm. are we? in this country and the system here is it worse than one might find in other for example Western European countries in that respect?
1: Yeah. So we've a very different system here because in most That's, of yeah. Europe you're talking about uh, uh, what what they call an inquisitorial, inquisitorial system. as opposed now, to adversarial, yeah. It has its own um, drawbacks as well and it can take years and years for people to get any sort of a hearing so it's not perfect. But here one person has to win and one person has to lose at the end of a case. And the, the two people who are, our system says that the two people who are fighting for a win, one is the DPP, the prosecutor, and the other is the defendant, the person accused. And, and our system is very, very new to any recognition that victims have rights. And in fact, it it, it is, a victim's right not to be re-traumatised by the court process. But that right is brought in by a European directive about six years ago. It is a totally new way of thinking about victims. Victims in our current system are just, to go back to your analogy of stealing the bicycle from the shed, they're just the owner of the bicycle and they're there to give their evidence, sit down and stay quiet. Whereas, in fact, in these cases where the damage is to a person's intimate dignity and where everything depends on whether the interaction was with consent or not, like proper consent or not. In those cases where someone is walking into a courtroom as a victim, into a room of 20, 30, 40 people sometimes, when you count everyone that's there, and they don't know anyone, except maybe someone from the rape crisis centre or a family or a friend who might be with them. And, and they have to talk about a situation of which they uh, where they felt shame, where they felt uh, let down, where they felt maybe they should have made different choices, all of these things, you wouldn't talk about them to, you know, to your own family, like to, to people you trust um, and you have to go in and do this. And those people are then told, come here, give your evidence, just sit down there then and, and let's see what happens after that. So I think... Um, and again, I'm giving very long answers. but No, no, <laughs> just, very informative answers, no <laughs> I mean, need. One of the things that I, I sort of have noticed over my time in the Rape Crisis Centre is that when you look back on things, 600 years ago, uh, so I'm not going to go through all the 600 years, but 600 years ago, <laughs> it was the person who was harmed who brought a prosecution into a criminal court. And then after a while, 300 years ago, the police got together and you had police forces forming and they took it over time by time. And the police were had all the power until maybe the middle of the last century, when accused people got legal aid in our system. And suddenly they had, they weren't as They weren't left adrift, you know, the way they had been before that. But until then, accused rights were very, very limited. I think we're only at the start of our common law system, understanding that victims are human beings and where they are involved in traumatic experiences, they have rights that have to be protected and that the state is obliged to protect and to vindicate. And that's why we would say, for instance, where we work with victims, we would say we can give that psychological support. We can be the person who sits with somebody when they're hearing awful things said about them, uh, when their private lives are being torn apart. We can do that. But they should also have access to legal advice and to legal representation because they're involved in a legal process where their evidence is crucial. They should they should have a right not to be re-traumatised in cross-examination. So there should be some level at which you would say that's enough. And indeed, I see some of the judges, uh, Judge Tara Burns recently in a case uh, complimented the defence team on doing their job without barracking anyone. But it's it, Inconsistency is part of it. You don't know who you're going to get. You don't know what judge you're going to get. Mm-hmm. You don't know what, what the defence counsel are going to say. And you can find that they will ask to bring up things like your previous sexual records, although that can only have the most limited of um, value. In something where the question was, on, at the date of the charge, was the, was the sexual activity consensual? So your, your, your private life, your previous sexual history, your sexual experience may be trawled over. Um, your counselling notes uh, can be called in to see, um, are, you, are you trustworthy? Do you say exactly the same in your counselling notes as you told the guards? That doesn't happen the man whose bicycle is stolen or the woman whose mm-hmm. bicycle is stolen. Nobody says, can I see your doctor's notes uh, where you went to get um, something after that? They don't even say it if if I'm mugged on the street and my wrist is broken or something. My word is taken for it. Whereas in these cases still, we are talking about very um, intimate matters being discussed uh, without care for the people whose Mental, you know, state mm. who's is is being put like up for public sc- or semi-public scrutiny. At least our our courts are held in private in the in the more serious offences. But even so, it's still it's still degrading.
0: Absolutely, and ju- just just to mention when I when I said about the the bicycle in the shed, that was actually a comparison that one of the victims initially made to yeah. me in in terms of how she felt about, about it being dealt with. Yeah. No, one case was pretty topical because it happened last weekend and pretty significant in one way and that was this man, uh, Sławomir Gorlowski, uh, I think he's a Polish national, a man who last week was sentenced, if I'm correct, for the last five serious assaults on women between 2010-2016. He is now serving a total of 34 and a half years in prison which is very considerable I think one of the longest sentences certainly frantic in this area uh, and some of those are consecutive. Yes, One of his victims a, a woman called Ruth Maxwell she spoke publicly very bravely about her experience and she spoke to Noel Baker and the Examiner at the weekend and just to quote here something that Ruth said um, Nolan, she said I'm alone I am all alone in my fight and because of random acts of violence they don't take the same position in the eyes of experts that other forms of gender based violence do I've always come up against from others she's saying here yes but yours is a random attack domestic violence is more serious statistically That 88% of attacks and it's like please don't say this to me, you're making me feel like mine means nothing. Does Ruth have a point there in terms of attitudes in some quarters towards those who are the victims of random attacks as opposed to, for example, domestic violence?
1: Um, So I I, I think that the question of domestic violence is actually, it it must be somewhat reassuring for those who who have experienced domestic violence and who just want... It stopped as well, because what seems to be happening is that there is a greater recognition of violence which happens in a domestic setting that we can we can get it. Because for an awful lot of us, we have been at some stage in a domestic setting where maybe we felt somebody would lose their temper. Somebody did lose their temper. Somebody hit somebody And you can understand how desperately shocking that was in a country which didn't actually want to hear one word about it every so often and that people were told not to complain and not to make people agitated. So, you know, the line would be, he won't hit you if you do what you're Mm. if you do what you're asked to do. So domestic violence is big. I think, is now becoming to be realised as a terrible harm and as something that needs to be eradicated from our society. And I think sexual harm, sexual violence, sexual abuse, uh, rape, or even the random assault which was carried out by um, um, by Gerolofsky uh, serially against a number of women, so was gender-based violence, people feel less able to do something about that because they say well what can you do you can't stop these random attacks and in sexual violence as well there's often the thing that goes why were you standing at a bus stop at that hour why did you take that shortcut Mm. through a park you know why Why didn't you stay away from from that kind of violence? So Ruth does have a point. It points to a greater understanding in our society of domestic violence than was there previously. That much is good. But the sense of sort of, sure, what can I do about it that she found, where she is making such a great point, as do others, about the deep harm that is done to you if somebody attacks you Assaults you and leaves, left her with physical injuries as well. But even with, even without physical injuries, definitely leaves everyone with real psychological damage, which can impact your capacity to sleep, your capacity to earn a living, uh, to eat properly, uh, to to not go into addiction. It can, it can go away for a while and come back again. Ruth is talking about all of these harms. And, and the need for mental health supports, talk therapy like rape crisis centres would do, other supports along the way, and she just has not found them along the way. Look, all mental health services, we know this, rape mm. crisis centres are calling, but we know others are in similar positions. Mental health services are the poor relations still. They are so important. We know, actually, we know for sure that if we can Um, If we can get in contact with somebody and if we can work with them within a a short period of, say, an assault happening or a a rape happening or the rest of it, our chances of helping the person to stabilise, to manage it and to get better are much better than if they have to wait for months or or if they don't come near us for a long time because they're afraid to talk about it or because they think they did the wrong thing.
0: That's very interesting actually because that correlates with um what you might call physical um Yes. You know, when somebody gets a stroke or whatever, that's the, right. the, the quicker the quicker you're able to deal with it, the better yeah. chance you have yeah. recovery. And as you're saying, mental health wise that would apply also after a traumatic incident yeah. such as this.
1: To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at IrishExaminer.com forward slash subscribe.
0: Another element to the system uh, that's in the news at the moment, Nolene, is the issue of character references. Yes. And there's talk of changing that, particularly in relation to sexual or intimate violence cases, that kind of thing. There's a bit of controversy over. Where would you stand on that?
1: So what what we have seen and uh, what we see in Dublin Rape Crisis Centre is we see people who have to sit and listen to character witnesses being called for a defendant who say things like, this is a kind and a loving person. This is a good parent or a good child or a whatever it is, um, as well as saying they're a great GAA player or whatever else they say about them. But the whatever about the GAA player, and uh, uh, I don't mean GAA, but you know, just that they're very good at ah, their yeah, job yeah, or something aspect. like that. Yeah. But whatever about that, it's where they speak to a person's character as a good and kind person. And the victim is sitting there after years possibly of investigation with a conviction, which a, 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 criminal, con- there's a criminal sentence ha- is about to be passed because the person has been found not to be good, not to be kind in the context of the abuse they inflicted on somebody else. So at the moment, our system is that we sentence the person for their crime, but also we sentence the person. So it's not, so it's not that crime X gets this sentence. It's crime X done by this person. Mm. We take into account that it was their first offence. We take into account a whole lot of things along the way, and so the judges hear the good as well as the bad about the convicted person. All that I I think, for, for as long as that's our system, then what we have to do is just ask people who are going to give character references to be available to be questioned on them to be challenged on them how do you know this is a kind person how like what what is where is the evidence for that in these circumstances have you ever seen that person in circumstances like he has now been convicted of getting involved with Because right now you can, if you go into the criminal courts and you do often enough to see this, you'll see a a lever arch folder full of letters that the defence have told the accused person to get in the hope that it might do something. So we're not saying that they should be done away with. We're simply saying if you're going to give a character reference, then you have to be able to stand over it. And some of the um, stories that you hear are the ones whereby a person gives a character reference, but they don't know what the the now convicted person has done. So they they don't know in what way their character has been part of the offence. Or they give them because they're asked to do them. Or uh, Regina Doherty, who's one of the people who is sponsoring um, legislation. The three leaders in the Shannon the three government party leaders, uh, are all combined, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Green Party, Pauline O'Reilly there, have, um, and Lisa Chambers in the uh, Fianna Fáil, have come together in order to sponsor this piece mm-hmm. of legislation, simply to say, in the same way that other evidence that comes before the court is tested and can be tested, this also should be tested.
0: Uh, my understanding correct me if i'm wrong Nolan yeah. is that the thrust of this proposed legislation it would be towards intimate violence it would not apply right across the criminal code and i'm just and i know you're you, you have a specific area but with your lawyer's hat yeah. on what do you think about that
1: i see no reason why it wouldn't apply to all offences i i mean i can like the politicians have they were the people who, co- who ultimately decided on it. But, um, I mean, I, I think what's, uh, what's right for one set of offences is right for them all. I think it would be absolutely, uh, I would see no reason why that would only apply to one set of offences. I, I, right. I think we have to think about it a bit differently. Often these references could easily be got by middle class, respectable people in a community much more easily, perhaps, than they could be got by the victim of a crime. And and so the more sort of settled you were in your community, the more of these you could produce. And, and people want, like, they want to be nice to other people. They want to keep the status quo intact. And that, I think... Came down to, I mean, just from my own time as a solicitor, I have to say, Michael, I went and I asked people to go get those references as well from anyone that would give them a reference. I would tell them what to put in the reference that, or they, and that they could put more, but that they needed to focus on this, that and the other, because it could affect their sentencing. Now, so there's a few things then. Sometimes you'll hear, oh, judges don't take any notice of these references. Well, there's an awful lot of people getting hot and bothered about it. If if it's true that judges don't take any account of them, they shouldn't be put in in the first place. Um, but th- th- there must be some notice taken of them. The judges... Have to read them, and, and, and e- this, even
0: I suppose, Nolyn, the perception that a judge might take notice yeah, of it is a thing yeah, in itself, anyway. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, yeah, it is, it is. But when, but where people are are saying, you know, are saying things that go to, um, that go to a victims that go to the accused character, and the victim knows this to be wrong or knows this to be inconsistent with what is it is. Uh, with what is the reality of the offence that has happened? Then, in those cases, it's actually deeply insulting and wrong that a victim shouldn't be able to advise the court that, in fact, what is being put before the court is not the full story.
0: Very good point. One other thing that strikes me, just in terms of, and uh, some this is brought up me was. Are there ever cases where you or somebody in the centre says, when somebody arrives in um, a, a, who, who is after, as far as uh, given account of having suffered through a traumatic event, are there ever cases where somebody in the centre says, well, hold on, this doesn't sound plausible, um, whether there may be something else at issue, whether it could be a mental health situation or anything like that, and whether or not a violent assault actually occurred? Mm. Does that arise and how would you deal with it if if one if you were one of the staff in there felt it was arising?
1: Yeah. And and the therapists come across this the whole time or they get asked about this the whole time. How do you know that somebody is telling the truth? And I suppose we come at it by saying, first of all, as you probably do as well as a journalist, look, um if you tell me that this is the case, I will believe you. Obviously then you'll be working through layers with people who are coming in for counseling. Counseling is very hard work. It is not a soothing time where you can come in there and just chatter on in your own way. And uh, that's not the way it works. My therapists are the toughest people I know in terms of um, working with people to try and to ensure that they get the best out of it because our resources are limited apart from anything else. So we have to make sure that we do our best for everybody all along the way. But, but, If there is somebody who is with us, who has, there's a complexity to it because, Mm. say, mental health, because of previous experiences and all the rest of it, they will come across that. And there may be a case where, you know, you will pause something to give people time to think about something or to help them deal with some other aspect of their case with a different service or the rest of it. But it is never, ever our job. In, in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre to make a decision about whether the person was right or wrong. That's for the courts of our land to do. And, and, uh, either in, and very often people end up in family law proceedings and things like that as well. And, you know, even judges will sometimes say, I don't know. I don't quite know what to think all along about this. So there can be difficulties. So it's, it's one thing for us. We will We will deal with people as we find them. Uh, And where we are supporting people through counselling, they will, they will, you know, I I, I don't, I don't know why you would bother putting yourself through the hassle of coming into us for counselling if you didn't have something really traumatic to talk to us about. And one of the, so, oh yeah, every so often I get asked the question, often get asked the question, how many of these cases are made up? How many are are false allegations? Um, And there's, uh, as far as we can make out, very, very few. Uh, And actually the guards are really good at finding that out fast as well. But, what research there is about it, and it's hard to do research on this, but the research that's out there suggests that it's about at the same level of false allegations that are made of burglary, um, of physical right. assault and the rest of it. So that, there, you know, it's there's, there's always a low level, uh, but, but it is a, a much lower level than peop- People are less suspicious yeah. about other types of crime than they are about rape and other sexual abuse.
0: That says certain things about society and element society as well, of course yeah. it does, yeah. No, in a related area, sexual harassment, Nolene, last year, I think we may have been in a conversation, but you were quoted as saying that most people feel this isn't worth reporting. Now, I would have thought, in my ignorance, that that would absolutely have been the case up until recent years, but that it, it's gone through a pretty radical change with the... Me too, with everything that has come out over the last yes. number of years. Would, would, would I be wrong in
1: that? It's, it's definitely easier, Mick, to report now than it was a few years ago. Nobody would listen to you at all, um, I, I think, maybe five or ten years ago. But sexual harassment, if we take harassment in the workplace, which is a very common place where this comes up, it's still really difficult to report. Why? Because if you report it, your colleagues at work very often Have to take a side. Are they going to take the side of the person who carried out the abuse, who is often a superior, or are they going to take your side? So, the person who reports sexual harassment in the workplace is often seen as the disruptor, the person causing the problem. And so, for somebody in the workplace, if they have the luxury of a choice, they'll often leave rather than report. And The example that I'm using a lot at the moment is there was an international survey done of lawyers which showed quite significant sexual harassment and abuse of power along the way. And our law society, to its credit, did one amongst solicitors and trainee solicitors as well. And about half of the women who answered the survey said they had experienced sexual harassment in the workplace. Half of them. But only 10% of them, one in 10 only, would do anything about it, anything about it. The rest of them just don't want to do anything about it. And the reason I use those is those are lawyers. They actually know that there are procedures there. They know the policies that are there. They know sexual harassment isn't supposed to happen. And still they know if they go down that road that they are, they are going to find it hard to keep their job to get a reference for another job maybe, or to progress in their job or in their career. So, yet again, the the idea that sexual harassment is something that happens very regularly is something we're only starting to get used to. And I think, for instance, the higher education institutions, they're kind of leading the way now, Being really, I don't know, is it jollied along or pulled along by government to an extent, but they are are one of the uh, groups that are beginning to say zero tolerance of sexual harassment and we want to see more complaints coming forward, not less.
0: Yeah, it's a very dark area, as you say, and very difficult one for that reason, for for um, for it to be exposed totally understandably in terms of the people who are subjected to it, why they would react like that. No, there there's so many things I wanted to talk to you about just in terms of running out of time. And I have to come back to you someday. We have to talk about the law in general, your experience (laughs) in flack and that. But just yourself, one thing I'm curious about, finally... You've spent your whole life in the area of human rights or civil rights in one way or another, including your 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 current job. Um, did you ever think you're there? You're a lawyer. Why didn't you set up a personal injuries practice or even a criminal <laughs> law practice and sit back and watch the money rolling in and have a have a relatively easy life anyway? Um,
1: so law is a is a great it, it's a great um foundation for a whole lot of things. And I mean, I did run my own practice for a long time in Dublin as well. So, you know, I had the opportunity to do a wide variety of work along the way. Um, And, you know, it has been very good to me. I've been able to earn my living from law right through the decades. So I'm very grateful to it. I am very grateful to have that human rights framework uh, that I got through a lot of voluntary work that I did with Amnesty International back in the day, way back. Um, they were the people who really helped me to understand that actually, well, I you know, like family, school, all of those things as well, all contributed. Um, but like, if you if you see if you see law and, and how society is structured in terms of human rights and also in terms of equality, it gives you a great way to explain nearly any type of law or any type of situation. And it's most satisfying to be able to say, I can work on that topic and maybe I can just make this bit of a difference along the way. I'm not the only one. Like there's oodles of us out there using human rights law. And uh, and I think it is, it's a way, it's just a, a kind of nearly like a philosophy or something, but it makes a whole lot of sense. And also the people who work in the area are great. They're great crack. Uh, they're, they're very smart. Um, and they really want a better world as well. So it's it's always, it's a privilege to work where I work now. And it's been a privilege over the years to, to work with human rights and equality folk uh, as we you know because it's all, it's all it all just comes together it comes together nicely
0: Nolin, I'm sure it does and long may you run Nolin Blackwell thank you very much for talking to us today
1: thanks Nick it's been a pleasure thank you
0: I'd also like to thank our engineer JJ Vernon thank you folks for listening we'll be back again with you next week and staying by the wall till then.